If you'd turn in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 30. Okay, the site of Mark's gospel this morning returns from John the Baptist, from his execution at the hands of Herod Antipas, governor of Galilee. The execution occurred in the citadel of Machaerus, near the Dead Sea, down here in the southern... I see it there, but not here. Okay, great, thank you. Right here is where John the Baptist was executed, we presume. And this morning we're moving back up here to the Sea of Galilee, into the area near Capernaum. The district of Galilee is a very small area. It's only about 50 miles by 25 miles. That comes out to about 1,250 square miles. Uh, For comparison, Sedgwick County is right at about 1,000 square miles, a little bit larger. Butler County is 1,450 square miles, so Galilee is about in between the size of Sedgwick County and Butler County. It is, in that area of Galilee, there were approximately 200 villages scattered all around that small area. Uh, Another comparison, in Sedgwick County, there are actually 20 municipalities spread throughout. Wichita is obviously the largest. But you get the picture there in Galilee, in that little area, where little village towns spotted, dotted all throughout that area. And it's fairly densely populated because of that. And it's a farming culture. We know that, the sheep, the different illustrations that God gives with harvest and those things through His Son Jesus. It's an agricultural area. And that's where we've moved back up to this morning. The timing of this big biblical event is around 29 A.D. Now we read in verse 39 this morning, the people grouped together and sat on the green grass. You might think, well, that's an odd detail to put in here. But if we look at John also, it says, Now the Passover, or a feast of the Jews, was near. Together these two details tell us that this is the springtime, and it's probably around March or April. Several weeks, perhaps even a few months earlier, from this event, Jesus sent the disciples out in groups of twos. He multiplied His ministry effectiveness sixfold throughout this area of Galilee. Now remember, think about this. No longer are the amazing miracles and teachings of Jesus confined to one specific spot wherever Jesus is. But six teams have recently spread throughout the region. Each team is endowed with the power and effectiveness of Jesus Himself. The miracles are literally everywhere in this little pocket of the world. And the gospel of the kingdom of God is echoing from town to town. It's everywhere. These disciple pairs, remember, these are not second-rate wannabe guys to Jesus. They are not because Jesus has sent them with His power. Mark 6, verse 7 and 12, Matthew 10, 7 and 8, combined, it says, Jesus called the twelve to Himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power. Power over unclean spirits. And then He says, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. The disciples are raising the dead. And cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So they went out and preached that people should repent. Now, what's more even mind-boggling about this, if you try to fit yourself into it, if you were on the ground in Galilee at this time, you would have recognized all these amazing miracles are being done by your hometown boys. These are guys that you grew up with. Guys that lived in your neighborhood, they went to your market, they, they worshiped in your synagogue. You may have bought fish from these guys. You may have known them personally as friends. Four of them, Peter, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel, they're all from the very village of Bethsaida, just a few miles from where this miracle of feeding most likely took place. That's the good news of the context of what's happening right now. But... At the very same moment, far to the south, in the land of Judea, in this particular area, the darkness of John's execution by Herod, Herod's growing cunning towards Jesus, 
as well as the murderous plot of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, as they prepare to kill Jesus, all these things are taking deeper and deeper root. Jesus has been ministering from town to town in Galilee for over a year now. He will travel north briefly up here to Tyre and Sidon. Did it again. It's up there at the very north. You see Phoenicia? That's where Jesus is going to go after this miracle that He performs this morning. After that, He will come back into Galilee. He will go down through Decapolis. And that Decapolis, remember, that's the home region of who? Anybody remember? He was sent back to Decapolis because Jesus had delivered Him from a legion of demons. He wanted to follow Christ, but Jesus said, no, go back to your land. Go back to your cities and tell what great things the Lord had done. And he went through the Decapolis. Jesus goes down through the Decapolis, down along through Perea, and then crosses Jordan into Judea. In Judea, he will spend his last few months. And then he will eventually arrive at his target city, the city of Jerusalem, where he will carry out the greatest rescue mission and miracle of all time. But for now, now the disciples have completed their ministry mission and they have returned to Capernaum to their rabbi and their teacher Jesus. And that's where we come in in verse 30 this morning. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told Him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And He said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Jesus, He is very, very sensitive. He recognizes the fatigue mentally, emotionally, physically that His young battle squads have undergone. Spiritual warfare for the kingdom of God has been waged for the last several weeks across this small little 25 by 50 mile zone called Galilee. This spiritual warfare we read, was executed by two primary strategies. First of all, the disciples' actions. What had they done? What was it that was spiritual warfare? What did they actually do? They healed the sick. They raised the dead. They cleansed lepers. And then, their teaching. And what was their teaching? Their preaching was the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is at hand. That Jesus, the Messiah, has arrived. And that men must turn from sin and follow Him. Now this is the first mention this morning of the high priority of preaching and hearing the gospel. Now I want you to listen because it will come up again in even a, a greater context here in just a moment. Where we will be again told how important the preaching of the gospel is. Now Jesus does something. He takes them on a boat and they go off and go to a deserted, King James says a desert. Some of your versions will say a desolate, a quiet. Strong's translates this as a lonesome and solitary place. It's not like the rugged area where John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing people. That was dry, dusty, desolate, forsaken area. This is isolated, but it's more like a hilly grassland. And in some ways, I've seen pictures, we've visited some of that even, and it's very similar in appearance to our own beautiful Flint Hills, covered with grass at this time of year, just a beautiful area. But it's far from the clamor of village life. Now Jesus takes him in the boat, but he already knows this is going to be a short rest. But it will be enough to prepare them for the amazing lessons they will be learning in a few hours. What lies ahead this morning is a most unique miracle. Its impact will be felt directly by tens of thousands of individuals simultaneously. And one might say, well, Jesus' miracles were always amazing. Well, they, they are. But this one is very unique, and it is one of only two miracles Jesus did that is in all four of the Gospels. The other, the fourth one, was His resurrection from the dead. So this miracle has very extreme importance. 
Verse 33 begins to get us into what's happening here. You see, this amazing miracle will spill out over a huge multitude. But at the same time, from this huge multitude, we see Jesus is beginning to do something. He is starting to focus His ministry down on His 12 disciples. And this becomes a very, very important part of what Jesus does this morning. But the multitudes saw them departing on the boat, and many knew Him, or knew them, And it says, they ran there on foot from all the cities, and they arrived before them and came together to him. Ran there. Well, where is this that they ran to? It's the area called Bethsaida, Julius. And you can see it up there in the top right-hand corner. This spot is a small fishing village, and it's located on the northeast banks of the Sea of Galilee. From Capernaum, which you see over there to the left, It is about a four-mile boat ride straight across the ocean or the the sea. If you walk it by foot, it's about an eight-mile journey. So why would these people run the eight miles along shore to catch up with Jesus again? Well, John tells us in chapter 6, he says, Then a great multitude followed him because, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. The, The people had seen these things. And it was happening over and over and over again. And they just can't get enough of experiencing and seeing what Jesus is doing. And they're bringing more and more sick people so that Jesus will heal them. Now, I'm going to say something here that might sound like a rabbit trail to begin with. But it's really not. Let me try to tie this together because it is very important in understanding the ministry of Jesus and the response of the people. Turn in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Verse 20 reads, Then he, Jesus, began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloths and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Verse 21, zero in on that. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Jesus wasn't just mumbling this. This was essentially a curse. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon. These are Gentile seaport cities along the Mediterranean coast. And we all have heard stories about seacoast cities. They have a very well-earned reputation for wickedness. With Philistine influence, their immorality ranged from Baal worship to violence to profanity to prostitution to drunkenness and about anything else you could imagine. In fact, Amos chapter 1 verse 9 indicts Tyre for selling Jews into slavery. The miracle we are looking at this morning, it is the pinnacle of Christ's miracle work throughout Israel. And in, Genta, and in Galilee, they have seen it all now. They have seen everything that Jesus can do miraculously. And what is the result? Jesus makes it clear that if the people of Tyre and of Sidon had seen what the citizens of Bethsaida and the surrounding region had witnessed, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, there would have been a deep and contrite life change turning to God in these extremely vile cities. Bethsaida, on the other hand, it was steeped in Jewish culture. She held herself high in religious prominence among the wicked Gentile world. But she couldn't hear and wouldn't see. 
What is this mighty work that takes place a few miles outside of Bethsaida on the opening hillside? Look at verse 34. And Jesus, when He came out, saw a great multitude, and He was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So He began to teach them many things. Was He irritated with the crowd? Was He frustrated with the fact that here He was, He's trying to find some rest and solitude for His needy disciples. And the crazy crowds are back again. Not at all. Not at all. Jesus' heart for man is amazing. It says He received them in Luke. Some, he did not simply allow them in or tolerate them at this moment. In some of your translations it reads, He welcomed them. And He gave them what they needed most. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing, according to Luke. Jesus, listen carefully. Jesus, more than anyone, knows these are a deeply needy people. They are in need even though many of them do not recognize how deeply they are in need. Jesus describes the men, women, and children calls him sheep without a shepherd. Now, some of you have worked with sheep. Sheep without a shepherd are in serious trouble. They can't find their own way to food. They can't find their own way to water. If they fall over and end up on their backs, my understanding is they can't even upright themselves. They can't protect themselves in any way without a shepherd. They are helpless in terms of survival. In Matthew 9, it is written, when Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. In the heart of God, this was no new standing for the people of Israel. God the Son, long before He had become God in human form, Jesus, had seen His people lost and wandering. 1 Kings 22, verse 17, the prophet Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all of the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Once again, the people of Israel have wandered far from the fold of God as Jesus comes. Their leaders have forsaken them. For this reason, Jesus had compassion on them. Compassion. This is very unique. It is a Greek word, compassion, and it is used only for Jesus Christ in all of the New Testament. Only Jesus is shown to be compassionate. It expresses a feeling of deep in his gut, feeling in his bowels. He is hurting for the desperate straits of these people on the shore before him. He sees them and he, Jesus is literally views the tens of thousands of people there and then his heart is broken and his gut is hurting for these people. So what does he do? What does Jesus do? What would you have done? What would you have done if you had been on that boat? What would many ministries and social-minded organizations have done if this was the case today? The priority that Jesus offers these leaderless, lost, and struggling people is the teaching of the truth of His kingdom. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. Other forms of assistance may be appropriate as a support or provision. But first and foremost, Jesus teaches them the truth of who He is and the kingdom of God. That is the only thing that will satisfy their deepest need. Matthew 6, verse 31. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Christ began with the necessity of the gospel. Now that may seem almost callous or or insensitive. Surely, though, He knows every heartache of every man, woman, and child that was on that shore. He knows the scars. He knows the discouragements. Every broken relationship. Every addiction. Every failure. Every hypocrisy. Every disease. Every injury. Jesus knows fully well. And he knows it of every person in that mass on the beach. And he knows it of every person in this small church in this room gathered together. He knows what you need. And he knows that what you need most is to know him and his kingdom. Then according to John, Jesus gives a hint of what is to come. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Then in verse 35, When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. They have no answers. For the need. This is a miracle to manifest Jesus as God. They have no answers for the need, and this is a very real need. This is more than just, hey Jesus, it's about dinner time. Any ideas for what we're going to eat tonight? The disciples continue. Why don't you send them away? That they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Now, the problem is that most of the villages are miles away and there is no possible way that these little towns of a few hundred people would be able to supply enough food for descending mobs of thousands that would come marching into their towns. The disciples are basically saying, there's nothing we can do. Let them fend for themselves. But we just saw, what are these people? They are helpless sheep. They're sheep without a shepherd. It is too late in the day to put them out on their own. But Jesus answered and he says to them, You give them something to eat. Can you imagine the disciples? You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? So we have a challenge to faith here. These are guys who have been through quite a bit here lately. And their faith is being brought to a new level. Jesus' command in verse 37 is clear. But to the disciples, it's completely irrational. In Mark, more is given of Jesus' commands. He says, they don't need to go. They don't need to go anywhere. You give them something to eat. Now the size of the crowd is daunting. At the end of this account, Mark specifies that there were 5,000 men. Men. The word for men has no gender confusion here. It means specifically adult males. Matthew's gospel gives clarity on just how many were there. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. In other words, with women and children included, there would have been a minimum of 10,000 people there. And many of the writers suggest a surging mass of upwards of 25,000 people were hungry on this hillside. Now what's the problem? 
Aren't these the same disciples that had just returned from the spiritual battlefields where they healed the sick? They delivered many of demons. They even raised people from the dead back to life. Well, perhaps in their minds, those were well, all one-to-one events that they had actually seen Jesus do. They had never pictured something like this, so of this magnitude. It completely escaped them that the one who commanded a raging storm be turned into a placid lake, or a legion of demons release a man and enter into a herd of pigs, that this same one had a way of solving the food supply problem. Now, you and I, we have the complete book from end, beginning to end, don't we? With the whole story before us, it seems pretty short-sighted and weak of the disciples. But I can't help thinking that is where I and where most of you would have fallen too. New challenges often seem like much bigger challenges. And this problem was new and it was massive. You can think of what these disciples... What do you mean? Us give them something to eat. The disciples' reaction actually comes off in a sarcastic way. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, denarius was what? How much is that worth? How many of you know? Right. A denarius was worth one day's full wage. 200 of those would have been close to what a man would earn in about eight months. That's a lot of money. And there's no indication in Scripture at any point the disciples carried that much cash on hand. And even if they did, you have several other problems. Location and time are against them. Where will you go to buy enough food to feed about 20,000 men, women, and children? The villages in that region would have had no more than about 300 to 600 people in population. They don't have that much food in the whole town. Besides that, we are in an isolated location, so there are no villages close by anyway. Right, Jesus. How are we going to do that? Grab our bottomless money bag and run out quick and buy some bread? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. What do we have? In the Gospel of John, the owner of this little lunch is a lad. It reads, is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? Asked the disciples. Now know, at this moment, Jesus is not trying to find out if there was possibly enough food among the crowd that could be shared for everyone. Believe it or not, as Sproul describes the explanation of some biblical critics who deny supernatural power, some say Jesus asked His disciples to go around and find out who had brought food, and it turns out that some had brought loaves and some fish. So Jesus addressed the multitude and said, Share what you have with one another. Thus everyone was able to eat, because those who had brought food shared with those who had not. The true miracle that took place was an ethical miracle. There was a miracle of human beings sharing their provisions one with another. That makes an interesting moral fable, but it has no relationship to the truth, and it elevates man far above God. It's nonsense. I read through a couple of other explanations. Some that Jesus had this robe on with these flowing sleeves, and that He had stashed a bunch of food in a cave, And his disciples went back in there and they handed it up through the back of his robe and it just kept coming out of his sleeve as he handed it out. Believe it, this is what some of the critics of Scripture have tried to use to explain away the supernatural power of God. We hear that and we know that's crazy. That's foolish. No, Jesus' assignment to the disciples was not to find out how much food was on hand. But what was it? It was to show the precise opposite. How little food was available at all. That's what he wanted. You see, the classroom is ready. Notice how the master teacher is setting up the classroom for the subject he is preparing to teach. This is no accident that there are thousands of hungry men, women, and children standing around them. And you know how hungry children are. And some of you know how hungry men are. It's not a pleasant sight. Secondly, that it is late in the day. And people, including the disciples, are starting to wonder, what are we going to do? How will we get dinner? Thirdly, we are way out here in the middle of nowhere. And fourthly, practically speaking, 
There is no food available. Only one young boy who brought along two likely very small pickled fish. This was typical of what it would have been carried. And five rolls or bread cakes. These are not like Wonder Bread that you get at the store with 30 slices. They were small little biscuits, five of them. That's all they had. I want to personalize this. So I thought about this a lot this week. Have you ever sat on the edge of bed with your wife or your husband and thought, I don't know how we're going to make it, honey. Have you ever felt like you had no hope, and no strength left? That you were all out and you didn't know how God could make anything out of the mess that you've just made? I have. Sherry and I have many times. God is never short, though, on His resources. Never short. Nor is He short on the ways in which He will work out any and everything to His glory. You look at biblical examples. Think of Abraham. He is up on that mountain. He has brought his son. He has carried the wood. He has placed it on the altar. And the son whom he loves, he has a knife ready in his hand to somehow plunge that into his son. And God says, stop. I have provided. Think about Joseph. Joseph is at the bottom of this pit. His brothers have beat him, taken his coat, and thrown him down there. They sell him into slavery. And then the next thing you know, he's a prisoner in some forsaken prison cell far away from anyone that he knows. Do things look hopeless? Does he have any resource he can rely on? He has no networking, no connections at that point until God begins to work. And God does good out of each of those things. You think of Peter and the disciples. They're hiding in fear. They have just witnessed their master who has been leading them and telling them of the future and the kingdom that is to come. And now he has been arrested and they have watched him be executed publicly by both their own people and the Romans. And he is dead. He hasn't just gone away or disappeared. He is dead. How hopeless could it be? But it was the greatest thing that ever happened on the face of the earth. God works. He works. His resources are always sufficient. And I encourage you, some of you, you're, you're struggling. I know there are financial difficulties. There are marital struggles. There are difficulties with children. There are difficulties in your job. There are difficulties with neighbors. There are uh, a horde of hardships going on. And sometimes we wonder, how do we get through this? We've tried, we've done this, and we're at the bottom. That is the classroom in which you will learn faith. Jesus is faithful. And we're going to get back with that in just a moment. In verse 39, it says, Then he commanded them to sit all down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks of hundreds and in fifties. Here we see a miraculous supply. A miraculous supply. Order is established. And this quickly turns this mass of teeming humanity into manageable sized groups. But one still may say, now they could all go hungry in an organized fashion rather than in a teeming mass. How was this going to solve the food shortage? Verse 41, And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples to set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. The little is miraculously made great. A lot happens in this one verse. Look at all the verbs there. Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish. Then he looks up to heaven. Then he blesses the loaves. And he breaks the loaves and gives them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them. He gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. Now we see, we see the steps Jesus takes here. But honestly, we are left clueless into the mechanics of how this could have ever happened. Miraculously, as Jesus broke the fish and bread into pieces, they were multiplied by God continuously. 
Perhaps Jesus continued multiplying the food as he dispersed it to the disciples. Perhaps the food baskets just never ran empty as they were handed out by the disciples. We don't know how this happened, but it would not end. And Jesus kept supplying in a miraculous way. But in the midst, in the midst of this supernatural provision, we see Jesus doing more than simply supplying food for thousands. And I think what he is doing here is more significant even than the food supply. And the fact here is, is that he is actively preparing the disciples for ongoing ministry. This will be his kingdom. This is how it will grow. This is how it will be spread throughout the world, through his disciples. He, first of all, begins with willing disciples. They had to have a willingness to be discipled. The apostles themselves, they must submit themselves to sit at the feet of Christ and learn of Him. Not just about Him, but learn Jesus. Learn this God-man. To be the ambassadors of Christ, they must know Him and be faithful citizens in the kingdom. They must know Him intimately. Then preparation to disciple. At this point in the gospel, the apostles are being prepared to disciple others. Now they are being used by Christ Jesus for His ministry. They are not simply onlookers any longer. Up to this point, before He sent them out and they came back, they had been watching a lot of amazing things, but now they are participants. They are participating in kingdom ministry under the supervision of their master. And third, an obedience to disciple. Very soon, these same men will be called to disciple other men and women. When Christ has accomplished His work of propitiation on the cross and victory in rising from the dead, He will send His Spirit to dwell in them and give them power to minister and make disciples everywhere. And this was in preparation for that. So what are the results of the miracle? Verse 42, So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. Who ate? Who ate the meal? Everyone. No one was left out. They all ate and were filled. That means just what it says. Everyone ate. And when they were finished, everyone was completely full. That's every man, woman, and child. Young and old. Poor and rich. Scoundrel, prostitute, Pharisee, banker, and farmer. Everyone that was there. There was no ritual washing, purification, or kosher regulations observed or expected. If you were hungry on that hillside, Jesus fed you. And how much did they eat? Now that's a good question. Estimates based on the size of the boy's meal, if you multiplied it by 10 or 20,000, is a staggering 40,000 fish. 100,000 biscuits, that would be an astonishing amount of food. On the other hand, this food created and continuously created by Jesus, it may have been so perfect in its nature from divine creation that it would uniquely fill and sustain on a very, with just the smallest amount. We don't know how this happened. But we do know it was absolutely amazing to all who saw what was happening. Now there's one detail here at the end that crops up. It's that there were 12 baskets of leftovers. The basket here is not a bushel basket. It's a small container that was about lunch bucket size. So there were 12 small lunch bucket size containers left over with food. How many disciples were there? 12. What role did the disciples play in this miracle? They were busy, weren't they? They're like some of you when we have meals. They never sit down. They keep serving and serving. They served the multitude from Jesus' hand. So when everyone was served, how many of the servers could now have a basket of food to eat? Twelve. Isn't that neat? God's perfect and precise provision. Now in the last two weeks, we have just witnessed the occurrence of two great meals but they are extremely different in many ways. Let's compare Herod's feast with the divine meal of Jesus Christ on that hillside. First of all, Herod's feast. It took place in a palace. 
Jesus' meal on a remote hillside. Herod's feast, he invited the high rollers and the influencers. Jesus' meal, he served any and everyone that would come. Herod, why did he do this? To build his image among the people. Why did Jesus do this? To meet the needs of the people. Herod's feast, it was in wealth and opulence. Jesus' feast was simple, and it was satisfying. Herod's feast, the finale, was violence and murder. Jesus' meal, the finale, was compassion and contentment. If you had been there, though, and this, this is another aspect. The story is so full of, of different themes. If you had been there, on that beautiful Galilean hillside in the spring of 29 A.D., you would have also been aware of an undercurrent that was beginning to swell. There were competing purposes going on. Competing purposes. Jesus and His men had been demonstrating power and compassion for more than a year in this small corner of the world with spectacular results. Word was getting around not only to the needy and to Jesus' enemies, but to a third group as well. Only John's Gospel reports this portion. It says there in verse 14 of chapter 6, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, this amazing Jesus, this amazing Jesus reasoned these men He's got to be the one Moses prophesied of in Deuteronomy 18. There we read, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now, these men say, is the time to advance such a powerful personality to the place of our revolutionary king. One historian says this, he said, what they would have liked was that he gathered together some kind of grassroots army and head for Tiberias and overthrow Herod Antipas, who was a thorn in their sides, a very cruel ruler. They wanted to overthrow this non-Jewish Idumean Herodian dynasty. And they might have been happy if then he had gone after Philip the Tetrarch, who also was in the adjacent region. And then after that, Jesus could take on the Romans and free them from a Roman occupation. This idea that they would force Jesus to become a king, came off of this miracle because it was so dramatic and so powerful. That was going on as well. Jesus' response, Jesus' response to this in John 6 was, He departed again to the mountain by Himself alone. He departed to the mountain by Himself alone. Not for a moment, not for a moment was Jesus ever deterred from His life purpose of going to Jerusalem to die and to save His people and then rise in victory over death. He would be a Savior, all right, but one much greater than an earthly political revolutionary. He would conquer death's sting. He would release those who through fear of death were subject to bondage. Through His death, He would destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He would save for all eternity those who repent and believe in His name. If you do not belong to Christ Jesus, this is all in vain. None of this is true. If you continue to live independently, choosing to run your own life, you are still in the grip of death and you have no escape. Hell and emptiness are certain for you. There is only one possible escape. That is by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus alone as Lord and Savior. No good life no priests, no purgatory, no Muhammad, no good decisions, no hard work for good causes, nothing and no one will pay the price of your sin that would ever allow you to come into the presence of God, your Creator. Only one has done that, and it is Jesus Christ, the Savior. We see in this story this morning many things, but a couple of them are that faith is built through testing. God's faithfulness, which is, that's what we place our faith in, isn't it? 
His faithfulness. It's best demonstrated in the most hopeless circumstances of life. When we realize the reality that we have nothing, not even a few fish and a few biscuits that will save our life or change our predicament, that is when God delights to build our faith. In the darkest night, the light of Christ pierces through darkness. The trials can show us Christ like nothing else. James wrote in chapter 1, My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Trials. Maybe your business is on the edge. Maybe your marriage is strong. Trials. Count it joy and look to Christ, for He will work. Romans 5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And now hope, it does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We rejoice in tribulation. 1 Peter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then 2 Corinthians 12. I love this verse. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest on me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Only in the kingdom of God. On the brink of drowning in a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee, at the gravesite, the gravesite of a dear dead friend like Lazarus, when surrounded by a hate-filled mob ready to take him to the cross, Jesus is faithful. He always proves himself trustworthy. He is worthy of everything we could ever trust him with and more. Yet, we are twins of the disciples. We have sat in the face of hopeless situations like the disciples we had no solution, financial difficulty, strife between husband and wife, separation between parent and child, failures of sin, disease, death, addiction, or insurmountable debt. We find ourselves facing these and sometimes feeling no power to escape. Yes, God's Word equips us with answers on wise steps to take. But even after obedience, we must rely on God who has no limits to His power and compassion. This is Jesus Christ. Isaiah shouted. He said, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us. That is one of the greatest declarations. Isaiah declares it loudly. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us. There is no doubt on earth. He will save us out of everything. He can, and He will keep take care of His sheep. If you know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are not a sheep without a shepherd. You have the good shepherd who knows His sheep. You have the good shepherd who gave His life for the sheep. Back to our story. Was lack of faith resolved for the disciples from this point on? Did this clinch it for the disciples? Only a few verses and perhaps less than 24 hours later we will read, For they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Beware of this, brothers and sisters. Do not lose heart because of failure in faith. Press toward Christ ever closer. Confess and believe. Confess and repent. As Peter said to Jesus when the crowd stopped following Christ, Lord, to whom will we go? You alone have the words of life. And then finally, Yahweh Jireh, the Lord Provider. This wonderful title for God has its origins with the story of Abraham, which I mentioned earlier, when he was on the brink of sacrificing his son as commanded by Yahweh the Lord. Verse 10, chapter 22 of Genesis. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, 
Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thickets by its horns. So Abraham went and took that ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide, Yahweh Jireh. As it is said to this day in the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. See, Jesus provided rest and refreshment for His apostles. He provided truth, healing, deliverance, and even food to the leaderless people. He knows their needs. He knows our needs. And He experiences our trials. He experiences our trials. Hebrews, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This great high priest, who is He? Who is this high priest? Our very own high priest who represents us before God. It is Jesus, the good shepherd. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. What is comforting and unique about this high priest who represents us before God? He has been tempted in every way that you have, but has never failed in temptation. He is without sin. And then finally, because of this, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does this high priest provide us? He provides us freedom and confidence to come boldly to God's throne. His throne of grace. Not when we're at our best. Not when we've been polished and sparkling clean. But we come to His throne of grace, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we receive mercy, and we find grace to help in our time of need, no matter the need. He is there. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You sent Your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You, Good Shepherd, that You know every heart in here in this room. We're thankful for the 20,000 or so on that beach that you knew. We're Right now, Lord, we, we are just thankful that your word assures us that you know what we're struggling with. Help us to repent. Help us to trust. Help us to obey. Father, we, we are weak. We are like those sheep. But thankfully, we have a shepherd who cares for us. Lord, we owe you everything. We look forward to that day when you will return and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But in this day and age, we are like your disciples. We are on the battlefield. Lord, equip us, strengthen us, give us courage not to draw back, but to go boldly, not only to your throne, but into the trenches as your ambassadors. Use us, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.